welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. Amen. Thank you, guys. Good morning, church. How are we doing, Grace and Garden? Sorry, go ahead. You can, this is going to be awkward. It's, you know what? We practice this. Yes. Um, Perfectly. Not really, actually, but good morning to all of you. <laughs> hey, we, just so you know, um, we have not taught together yet. So this is our first time. So if you're new, welcome. We're all experiencing this for the first time today. My name is Darren, and I'm the lead pastor at Garden Church. And I am so excited to be here this morning celebrating the resurrection as one church together. Just so you know, everything about Christianity hinders on Easter Sunday. Karl Barth said, no empty tomb, no Christianity. We are here celebrating the fact that Jesus is alive and well. Yeah. Amen. That's right. The tomb is empty. Something has happened. He is risen. He is risen indeed. So this morning I woke up, I, you know, it's what I usually do every day, wake up, and then uh, and I, my daughter, she woke up earlier than she was supposed to, so I went into her room and I picked her up and we like to snuggle in the morning and so, you know, it was Easter, it was Easter morning, so I was snuggling with her and I said, you know, uh, Amelia, he is risen. He said, no, he don't. And I thought, all right, well, we, we have some work to do. Um, <laughs> And I was like, well, no, this is what you actually say. He is risen. He is risen indeed. But here's the thing about that. Is some of you here, that's an appropriate response. You hear this. You experience this. This worship seems so foreign, perhaps. You find yourself in here, and you think, what happened? Because all of these people around me seem to know something that I don't. And the thing that we know and that we want to proclaim is that the tomb is empty. But also if you feel that way, if you think, like my daughter, no, he don't, <laughs> let me tell you that that is actually completely understandable. Now, if you want, you can turn your Bibles to John chapter 20. That's where we're going to be. There's some Bibles in, in, in the chairs in front of you. I'm sure you all have devices. You can see who's from Grace and from the Garden based on going like this for the Bibles. Oh, yeah. So there's Bibles under the chair, folks. Go ahead and grab those. That's right. And they're, they're all the same color. They're blue. You'll, you'll find it. Uh, you can't search them the way that you can with a device, but I'm sure you'll get there. But in John 20, we see this opening, this beginning of the resurrection scene. And you need to remember this. The resurrection was completely and utterly surprising and unexpected. So that sense of he is risen and no, he don't is totally understandable. Read with me in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 2. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Mary Magdalene, the woman who has been faithful with Jesus all the way up to the resurrection, is here not entirely sure of what has happened. Her only explanation is that he has been taken. 
the resurrection is completely unexpected and catches these first people off guard. So if you're caught off guard this morning, that is a great place to be. Because what we're going to see this morning is we're going to see how the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus meets us in our human experiences. How he meets us as, as we're missing the point, as we're grieving, as we're doubting, and as we need restoration. So hold on, because the tomb is empty. So good. Cue Darren. Here that's I come. Right, that's Here we right. go. That was, a, that was a different transition. I like it. Hey. I'm just so... I'm like saying yes, yes and amen over here yeah. as you preach the resurrection. This is great. I love it. I know. I'm excited. So the story continues. We're going to keep going. John chapter 20, verse 3. It says, so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Let me just pause real quick because you missed this. If you're just reading the gospel of John for the first time, you need to know something. The author of the gospel of John is the apostle John. Great. You know it. But in the ancient Near East, when you were writing or telling a story, you would never use your name. You would come up with a literary device, a nickname for yourself if you were in the story. And we were given the nickname from the Apostle John. He calls himself with a humble title, the disciple whom Jesus loved. <laughs> right? So, this, so we know right away he wrote this after the other disciples died. So anyway, so we pick up. Also, just a quick thing, I want you to pay attention to this text. I love scripture, and I'm going to talk about why I love it as we preach. We love the scripture at Grace and at the Garden, and one of the things that you need to know is if you didn't have caps lock or emojis to emphasize a point, so if you wanted to emphasize something, you would repeat it. Okay, so look at what gets repeated as we read the text. Verse 4, both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw... And believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So, what I love about this Easter story is how real and human and down to earth the resurrection is. Think about it the personalities of the writers and the storytellers come out as we read the stories and the first eyewitnesses for the most significant day in human history. The tomb is empty, and right in the middle of this epic climax, the body has gone missing, and the eyewitnesses want to tell you about the resurrection, and as they're watching the events unfold, John wants you to know, I got there first. John 1, Peter 0. The resurrection is underway, and God's new creation is birthing forth. It's everything he promised. And this beloved disciple is missing the point. He stands in this sacred space, completely misunderstanding what's unfolding around him. And one of the things I, I love, and one of the things I want you to see, is that the disciples, if you read the Gospels, are ordinary dudes and girls. 
dudes and dudettes. How do you say it? Ordinary guys and gals. I think that's better. Folks. Ordinary folks. <laughs> Y'all. Dude, that's fine. Does that work? Does that work be, here? I don't I know if it works for me, but I'm going to keep going. We can, can we edit it on the podcast later? Not that that matters now. Um, and they were regularly missing the point. God will regularly use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Earlier in the Gospel of John, John and James are debating who will sit at the right and left of the resurrected Messiah in the age to come. They're literally competing for a position in the age to come. It's hilarious. You can't make this stuff up. They're regularly saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. They say one thing, you're the Messiah, and the next moment Jesus is saying, you're blessed, and then the next moment he's saying, get behind me, Satan. It's hilarious. These guys are just folk, ordinary folks. They're petty. They're competitive. There's a sibling rivalry, and they're continuing missing the point. And perhaps... This is a great argument for the legitimacy of the Bible. If you were making this stuff up, why would you include the competition, the missing the point, getting it wrong? You would only include it if it, in fact, happened in history. And this is what I love about the Bible. It doesn't gloss it over. It doesn't edit it out. Right in the midst of this massive miracle, the resurrection, there's personal drama. There's emotional immaturity. There's mistakes and fragility and insecurity. And there's this disciple that Jesus loved that still doesn't get it. And here's the point. God delights in using ordinary people. People who are mixed bags. Full of wonder. Full of uncertainty. Filled with faith and filled with doubt. Filled with grief and filled with hope. Filled with passion yet still confused. Sometimes they show up and they don't get it. But this is the hope of resurrection. Not that all things are going to work out in the end. They will, I promise you that. But hope that in the midst of my brokenness, in the midst of my failures, in my weaknesses, in my comparing, in my mixed motives, in my competing and missing the point, God still desires to use me for his purposes. And that God delights in the ordinary. God empowers you where you are, not where you should be, but exactly where you are, right in the mess of your life. He loves it when you don't have it figured out because that's where he meets you. Amen. Thank goodness for that, that he loves us when we don't have it figured out. So we're back to Mary. Now that should tell you something. Mary shows up twice at the very beginning of this resurrection story and then now. Why? Because women, honestly, are the model disciples. Say it again for the people in the back. All right, so Mary, yeah. (laughs) Women are the model disciples here in this story. In the crucifixion and resurrection story, they have gone nowhere when everyone else have run away. So here is Mary, John 20. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? 
Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. She said to her, or Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples that I have seen the Lord. Hmm. And she told them that he had said these things to her. So let's slow down for a minute. Mary is at the tomb weeping. Mary is at the tomb weeping because Jesus is not there. And the only way that she can explain this event is that somebody, some people, this ominous they have taken his body. Now this is the Mary who spent what she had in order to anoint the head of Jesus, to dry off his body with her hair. This is the Mary that was there when he died. This is the Mary that is still there now, and she is weeping, because what is left to do? The Lord that you have loved is gone. Can you imagine something more devastating to not only lose the Lord you love, but then not be able to mourn over his body, Mm. to not know where that body is? How can those wounds be healed? Mm. And so Mary is weeping at the tomb. And again, the details, she, she stoops down, she looks into the tomb through her tears, and she sees these two angels, one sitting at the head, one sitting at where the feet of Jesus lay. And they ask her this question, woman, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? And of course, her explanation is, well, I've come to see my Lord, but the body isn't there. And then she turns around and she sees, she sees Jesus. We know it's Jesus. She doesn't know it's Jesus. She thinks it's the gardener. And this is what's so amazing. Mary is more right than she could ever know. Because isn't Jesus really the gardener? Mm. The one who plants the seeds, the one who nourishes, the one who causes growth to actually happen. Mm. She thinks he's the gardener. And again, she's right, but she does not know what she's saying. Mm. So then she asks, oh no, then the gardener asks, Jesus, why are you weeping? Second time, why are you weeping? She thinks, of course, this gardener is the one who took the body of Jesus again more right than she could ever know. Mm. Because his body has been taken. It's been taken up into new resurrection life. And she asks, where have you laid him? And then Jesus, in the only way he can, says her name. Mary. Mary. And it's as if for the first time she can see This is the Lord who died on the cross, who was put in the tomb, who she thought was lost, but is now in front of her, saying her name, Mary. And then she calls him teacher. Again, model disciple. Jesus is the gardener, but he's also the teacher that teaches us in the ways of the truth and the life. And then, of course, we know where it goes. He he sends her to go tell to go tell the disciples what she's seen, what she's actually experienced. But here's where I want to pause, pull back, and ask you this. 
Are you weeping? Maybe not right now. We don't see the tears. But inside, are you grieving? Are you grieving the loss of the Lord you once knew, but feel so far away as if that faith has been taken from you? Are you grieving the loss of somebody that you've loved that death has stolen from you? Are you weeping? Because if you are, the good news is the resurrected Jesus meets you in Mm. your grief. Mm. The resurrected Jesus meets you in your sorrow. The resurrected Jesus in the midst of that grief and sorrow calls your name. Mm. And then all of a sudden, maybe you see in a new way. Mm. All of a sudden, you know this resurrected Jesus who has met you in your grief is also the teacher And the most wonderful thing here in this moment is that devastation and despair that Mary is feeling turns into incredible hope and possibility. The only thing left to do, the only thing left for Mary to do is to go and tell the other disciples. And what does she say? The best news in the whole wide world, the news that changes every single thing. I have seen the Lord. Man, you should keep going. It's so good. <laughs> Grace, do you, you have such a gifted pastor here. This is so great, Daniel. I mean, gosh, sorry. Living commentary. So she goes back and she tells the disciples, and then the next part of the story is Jesus shows up with doors locked, and they, they see the risen Jesus, and everyone's there except Thomas. So look at verse 24. I want to tell you the story of where Thomas is at. This would be such a bummer. Right? So (laughs) look at what it says. Verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So on the first Easter Sunday, you have disciples in a community in different places. In the story, you have Jesus who shows up to some disciples, and they see him, they witness him, and and they they get excited and ecstatic. ecstatic. They, They share the good news, and then there's Thomas who's getting lunch for everyone, right? And now their experience becomes a place of pain, perhaps. And Thomas is known as Doubting Thomas throughout history. And if it was written today in 2022, I think he would be called Deconstructing Thomas. He probably has a podcast. (laughs) At least one. At least one. (laughs) But his story is a gift for those who follow Jesus because he models for us today what to do with our doubts or our deconstruction. So the community of Jesus says to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas's response is, I saw the Lord too. He was killed. I saw him stripped and beaten and crucified. I know we buried his body. I can't believe. 
until I experience it for myself, until I touch him and see with my own eyes. Which, which is fascinating again, because in this epic story that's unfolding, right in the midst of this resurrection miracle, written into the text is someone who has doubt And if you go to Matthew, it reminds me of the end of the Gospel of Matthew. At the climax of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is going to commission his disciples to continue his ministry to the nations in the power of the Holy Spirit, to baptize the world in the Trinitarian reality. And it says in verse 16, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, disciples are worshiping and doubting. We don't like doubt today because it means we have to risk. And we're risk averse. We're all about comfort. We build our entire lives around convenience and comfort and safety and security. Doubt means, I'm not quite sure. It means you have to step out and act on something that's not 100% to you. And I don't think the world is looking for certainty. I think they're looking for real people who will gamble everything on Jesus. Let me say something real quick, because I know we're all a mixed bag in here. Doubt is not a threat to faith. Doubt doesn't threaten faith or truth for that matter. The opposite of faith is not doubt, it's sight. And let me say this in this moment of our time, that real truth doesn't need to be defended. All right? Next time you see that post, you don't need to defend the truth. Because truth just sort of stands there. And if you just give it enough time, truth will just remain. You don't have to argue truth. It is or it isn't. And if it is, then it's truth. And Jesus is truth. And so truth doesn't need to be defended in the same way that faith can exist or coexist with doubt. And biblical faith allows for questions and concerns and uncertainty and deconstruction. Let me just say this too. There are times in the church when we need to deconstruct our faith so that we can reconstruct our faith around the biblical revelation of Jesus. So many of us have been disappointed by institutions, by communities, by pastors, leaders, friends who are in the church or churches you went to. And that pain, that disappointment leads to doubt. It leads to confusion and misunderstanding, misplaced expectations. And if there's anything we could say over the last two years, it's that the division we've witnessed in the Western church, we need to deconstruct some things. Do you agree? The problem is this. When we doubt and have deconstruction today, we often leave the communities we are part of. We disassociate, we disconnect rather than press in. And look, Thomas is the model for doubt and seasons of deconstruction. Let's read what he does. Verse 26, 
So the story continues. He's our model for what to do with doubt and deconstruction. Verse 26, it says, A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. So just pause. Now he's there, praise the Lord. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. He already said that earlier to the other disciples, but look at what Jesus does. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told them, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas is a model for doubt and deconstruction. What does he model? Well, first of all, As Thomas is struggling with his questions, he's wrestling with his faith, where where do you find Thomas a week later? With community. It could have said a month later, a year later, Thomas models for us that he takes his wounds, he takes his disappointment, he takes his personal experience, his misplaced expectations, and he stays with the community. He says, I will not believe until I experience it. And Thomas holds on to his doubt, but he holds on to community. Or I should better say, the community holds on to Thomas and creates space for his doubt. And as a result of both, both experience renewal. The gift of the doubting Thomases or the deconstructing Timmies or whatever you want to call them, is renewed faith. You see, in our world, deconstruction plus isolation leads to disassociation and unbelief. But deconstruction plus Jesus-centered community equals renewed communities and renewed faith. The gift of Thomas's doubt is there's a second reveal Jesus shows up again, and notice what Jesus does with his doubt. He doesn't say, shame on you, Thomas. He says, no, I'm going to go right where you need me to go. This is what we keep seeing. Jesus keeps meeting each disciple where they need to be met. Community is not dragging people to a new experience. They're holding space for their experience, and Jesus meets them where they are. Just give it time. Give it time. Give it time. Jesus sees the doubt, enters into it, and says, touch me here. See for yourself. I am he. We need each other. Can I get an amen? Amen. We need community to hold us up in seasons of faith. Just this week, I heard a story from a mom in the Garden Church. She sent a text to our kids' pastor, Pastor Alex. She's a a mom of four kids and has a fifth grader, and she serves in our kids' ministry. And Pastor Alex leads a small group for fourth and fifth graders during the week. And she sent this text. She said, hey, you. you." I'm just going to read it as it is. Hey, you. I got some uninterrupted time with my fifth grader last night. Rare in a house with lots of kids. Am I right? Emoji, smiley face. We were reflecting on the day, and she said, Mom, before we started going to the garden, it was really hard to believe in a God I can't see. 
but it's not hard anymore. There are no words, Pastor Alex. We had been praying through that and asking tough questions since second grade. That's when she first shared her struggle with faith. And there it is. Thank you, Jesus. So here's a mom, for all you parents out there, here's a mom of a fifth grader who for three years have been working through questions of doubt, questions of faith, the challenge of believing in a God you can't see as a second, third, fourth, and fifth grader. And now in the midst of this community where the family keeps going to church, showing up, they're wrestling through this. The fifth grader goes, oh, you know what? It's not so hard anymore. It's good news. A few years ago when we had our first son, uh, my wife and I went through a really dark season. Our son almost died in the hospital of RSV, and we struggled afterwards with all sorts of issues. It was a dark time. We dealt with depression, anxiety. We were afraid of all sicknesses. This is before COVID. We wouldn't let anyone into our home. It was a very challenging season. I was on a leave of absence. Nobody could come into our home because we were afraid of, of our boy getting sick. If you've ever struggled with a loved one who's almost died because they couldn't breathe, you know what that does to you. But the effects of it was worse. We were reeling with all sorts of questions of his future health and how do we navigate this. And I remember one day we got a knock on the door from one of our elders, one of my best friends, and he brought a bag of gift cards and prayers that were written down by our church. And my wife and I sat as we shut the door. We wouldn't let him in. And we read... (laughs) Thank you so much. You don't have a mask. They're not really invented yet, but you'll wear it later. (laughs) And we sat there weeping, weeping. It was a defining moment. It was the moment hope came back into our home. We knew we weren't alone and that there was a community around us, and that moment renewed our faith. We need community. Thomas needed community, and the community needed Thomas. And the reality is the context for discipleship is community. And when we're honest with our questions, those questions often produce renewal of faith for the whole community. Darren, am I on? Okay, good. Darren, I think that, I don't know, I think you were saying something important. I think that there are so many people here who need that, who need that word. It's just so easy. I think that's what I was struck by when you were saying, when you were talking. It's so easy, it's so much safer to just say, I got this. But the resurrection says, no, you actually don't. Um, You don't have it, because I'm the one who has it, Jesus says, and you need it, and it's from me and only me. So the the final character we're going to look at is is the character who was named earlier, but um, in, in a way that was a little bit of a slight, you know, Peter. Uh, he didn't make it to the tomb quite as fast enough. Peter That's right. is the character. He's the one who, it makes sense that this is the last one. It's like, a, it's like one of the final things that Jesus needs to take care of. Mm. I mean, we know this Peter. Before Peter was the apostle who would preach that incredible sermon at Pentecost where like thousands and thousands of people would be saved, was the Peter who was the disciple who, when Jesus needed him most, he denied that Jesus three times. Hmm. So imagine that Peter, Peter here thinking that the one he just denied, the one he actually walked with for years, watching healing, watching proclamation, Hmm. watching restoration, 
is the Peter who, when Jesus is being arrested, you're going to be put on that cross, denies Jesus three times. No, I don't know that Jesus. I don't know who that is. No, I'm not one of his disciples. And then to think that that Jesus has died. I mean, imagine the weight of that guilt and that shame. Imagine the future that Peter would not have if that was the end of the story. But it's Easter Sunday, so we know that is not the end of the story. And see, Peter was prepared for this. In John 13, Jesus said, after Peter made this crazy claim about Jesus being the Lord and the Messiah, he's like, but here's what's going to happen. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Peter, of course not. One, two, three, every time. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. But then we see here in John chapter 21, Jesus coming toward Peter. We see that Jesus, after being with the disciples, after Thomas coming back to belief and to seeing Jesus, we see that he is on the shore while the disciples are fishing. And they're fishing in this boat, and John says, oh, I think I see the Lord. I think that's, that's the Lord. They at first didn't know, but then John's like, no, that's who it is. And so Peter, because he's kind, and because he was fishing naked, puts clothes on, and then he jumps in the water, and he swims to Jesus. It's a slow burn. I could hear, yeah, but it's true. That is is actually a thing that the text says, that he put clothes on for he was naked. And I love that about just these little details about about the text. But Jesus actually cooks the disciples a meal, cooks the disciples a meal, and imagine this scenario. Peter, the one who is living with this weight of guilt and shame, is eating with Jesus And he can't look at Jesus because they both know what he did. Mm. And those loose ends have not been tied up yet. But then after they eat, Jesus moves toward Peter. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. The second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because because he said to him the third time, "Do do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And then Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. So Jesus asks the question three times, one time for every time Peter denied him. Do you love me? Yes, Peter says, you know that I do. Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, Peter says. Tend to them. Do you love me? Yes, Peter says, you know that I do. And right now Peter's feeling hurt. Feed my sheep. Now, do you think Jesus needs to know that Peter loves him? Or is it more possible that Jesus needs Peter to remember that he does? Good. 
Does Jesus need Peter to know that he does in fact love him because he's going to call him to do something significant? Because what's different in regard to Jesus and Peter is nothing on the side of Jesus. What Jesus wants Peter to know is nothing has happened. My love has held on to you all the way through, all the way up on the cross, all the way into the tomb, and right now I am standing on the shore. My love is here. My love has remained. Do you love me? As we think about Peter, I imagine that there are some of you here who think, so where's my story going to end? Where am I at? Do I even have a part to play anymore? You know, and it's actually, you've been trying this whole time not to remember, but you know that you live with those times that you've denied Jesus. You live with those times that you've, out of your own comfort, out of your own desire for self-protection, you've said, I don't know Jesus. Hmm. Somebody's asked you, are you one of his disciples? And you think, no, 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 I'm not one of his disciples because that costs way too much. You know that somebody has associated you with Jesus and because of that association, you've stepped back and pulled away. You can't handle it. With your life, some of you are here and you know that you've rejected Jesus. And you wonder, is that the end of the story? And we know because of the resurrected Jesus meeting, in our own, meeting us in our own human experiences, meeting us even in our denial, that that is not the end of the story. The resurrection says, yes, there is still more for you. No, that is not the final word on who you are. Because here is Jesus on the shore, again, moving toward Peter. Peter, out of just a desire and being crazy, jumps into the water and swims to him and has no idea what is coming to him. But what is coming to him is restoration. The restoration that the resurrection makes possible. And so Jesus is standing before you now, asking you today, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Because your story's not over. The resurrected Jesus has moved toward you and stands before you, and now is the only time there is he is saying the words, do you love me? And here's what's so crazy about it. Peter says yes three times, and then Jesus gives him something to do. The Peter who rejected Jesus when Jesus needed him most, the Peter who didn't know where this would end, is now the Peter who actually has work to do. He's not just part of the story, he's taken up into the story and he has a significant role to play into the, in the story. And that is what you have before you now as Jesus stands before you saying, do you love me? Because the yes to that question means that Jesus is going to pull you into the greatest story there ever was and say, you can participate. You have something to give you have something that I will use to feed and to tend. And that's what Jesus is standing before you now, 
calling you toward. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? These are all great stories, and I think the problem with church today, if I could be real honest, Grace and Garden Church, is that we've settled for a powerless church. We're like, oh yeah, okay, I've missed the point. Great, use me. Oh, I'm grieving. Cool, I'm going to be like Mary. Oh, I have some doubts. I have a podcast. I'll deconstruct. Or yeah, I need restoration. Sure, I love you, Jesus. I'm going to do it on my own strength. The reality is this. We now have resurrection power. Jesus then goes on to breathe on his disciples and gives them the Holy Spirit. In Luke, it says, wait to be clothed with power from on high. Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God comes to make them witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. We need God's presence with us to make any sense of any of this, which is why there's parentheses in the Bible, and it's like, oh, they didn't realize that Jesus needed to uh, die in order to be raised from the dead. They don't get it until they have the Spirit with them. So some of you don't even have the capacity to say, what do I do with all of the grief? Are you kidding me? The last two years, stuff has been kicked out of you. You're literally carrying the ashes of your formal life. There's no capacity to sign up for anything at church. You need the power of God. Some of you are so lonely and isolated and you've been doing it alone and you've believed the lie of the modern world that life is about you and you realize right now in this moment that you can't possibly have any meaningful faith without a Jesus-centered community. So if you hear anything from the sermon today, it's that there are disciples in different places, in different stages of their faith, but they're together. There's no such thing as you, yourself, and Jesus in this individualistic world. You need community. And I don't mean community that looks and votes exactly like you. I mean Jesus community, diverse, yet unified, right and left, but unified, willing to lay down your life for your brothers and sisters because the model you were given is washing feet. That's it. That kind of community exists at Grace and at Garden. So step number one is join community. Be a part of a church. There's no getting around it. There's no other plan for the renewal of cosmos. It's Jesus through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit in ordinary folks. Who, by the way, will make mistakes and hurt you. Get used to it. There's no perfect church. All God's people said, amen. Amen. But the the thing is this... um, the whole point of, of the, the, the gospel story of John is found in verse 30. I want you to read this. John says, Jesus, in verse, uh, chapter 20, so go back to chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let me just say this again. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And you were made for life. 
You are made to live in a way that reflects harmony. Shalom is the the Hebrew word for this idea. You were designed to live in perfect, loving relationship with God, with your real self, with each other, and all of creation. This is how the story begins. And the way that it worked is through relationship with God. But we chose to go away from God's desire and heart, according to Genesis 3, and we've lived outside of God's desire. And what came as a result of our choice is sin, brokenness, pain, sickness, anxiety, depression, COVID-19, war in the nations. All of that is the result of our brokenness. But let me tell you something. The Christian story is the story of all of the cosmos being restored, reconciled, renewed through the power of Jesus, through ordinary people like yourselves. And how, how do we get to be a part of that story? Belief. It's not a spiritual checklist. It's not some yoga practice or diet. It's not polytheistic. It's not adding Jesus as an accessory. He's God or he's not. He's Lord or he's not. He's not an addition to your life. He redefines your life. And belief is not some intellectual concept that you can believe in him like some Instagram post or some alternative fact. Belief is standing, walking, sitting in the reality of what you've come to believe is true. It's about putting your trust in something. The the root word for belief is connected to this idea of being persuaded by, being won over by. The followers of Jesus, the stories of faith-filled people are people who have been persuaded, convinced, consumed. They have seen, they have touched, they had experienced Jesus for themselves, and they can't help but go on living the rest of their life in that direction. And brothers and sisters, that is what you're invited into today. To believe in Jesus again for the, or for the first time. To believe that Jesus lived in human history, died on the cross, and raised from the dead. But now, reconstruct your life and your schedule and your resources around that confession. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. And in our privatized world, There's something powerful about public declaration. In our world of, I'm just going to do this on my own time, my own thing, there's something beautiful about stepping out of a crowd and saying, no, 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 I believe. And that's why we're here. Some of us have made the decision. We're convinced. We've been persuaded. We've experienced something. And that something is the risen Jesus. And I believe that some of you need to make that declaration today in your own heart. And I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you want to pray this in your own head, I'm not saying that this is the answer. I'm saying this is the beginning of a journey. What I'm doing as I pray this prayer, just so you know, you can repeat it in your own head. I'm basically setting you up on a blind date. And I mean that sincerely. Like, I I don't know what you're going to get. I've seen Jesus you got to experience him for yourself. So why don't you just close your eyes? I'll pray this prayer. If this is for some of us. Look, I'm, I, I know most of you 
have been faithful followers of Jesus for a long time. And maybe pray, pray this as a renewal of what you believe in your own heart and head. And this is something I wrote. It just says, Jesus, I want to surrender my life to you today. Either again or for the first time. I confess that you are Lord and you are King. Thank you for living a perfect life. For dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for rescuing me. Sorry for all the ways that I've blown it. Thank you for your forgiveness. Come to, uh, into my life today and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to follow you for the rest of my life. And I pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.